Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's May 17th. 1792, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. The Tontine Coffee House was filled with underwriters, brokers, merchants, traders, and politicians, selling, purchasing, trafficking, or insuring, some reading, others eagerly inquiring the news. Everything was in motion. All was life, bustle, and activity. So wrote English traveller John Lambert about a coffee shop in Manhattan, which was the early incarnation of what we now know as the New York Stock Exchange, and made possible thanks to an agreement on this day in 1792 that changed global finance forever. And the agreement was called the Buttonwood Agreement, and it's amazingly short and sweet. It only took two sentences to launch the entire New York Stock Exchange. So this group of just 24 stockbrokers came up with this agreement, and it really wasn't filled with kind of flowery language and grand ideas. Instead, it was just this very no-nonsense text in which they promised two things. One, to trade only with each other, and B, not to undercut each other with cut-rate commissions. And crucially, they promised not just to trade only with each other, but also to trade directly with each other, because prior to this, stocks were sold and bought via auctioneers rather than on a trading floor. So as well as bonds and other securities, these auctioneers would also be auctioning off stuff like pork and tobacco. So it was a pretty chaotic scene (laughs) at the time. And also, there weren't many companies on the exchange when it started. The first securities traded on the new exchange were the Bank of New York. That's a good one, though, to be fair. (laughs) Yeah, it's not bad. For building a portfolio. I'm starting with the Bank of New York. <laughs> well, you didn't have an Apple or a General Motors at this point in American history. So the only things you could buy were government-issued stocks, like war bonds, for instance, or securities in mm. banks. Yeah. So New York was growing as a financial centre. It was a major trading city because of the ports. But actually, Philadelphia was the main trading city at this point. And, of course, Washington was being built, Washington, D.C., at this point. Like They decided to have a national capital And there was a discussion about, should we be doing all the official financial transactions in Washington, D.C., along with the Senate Mm. and the Congress and the White House? And essentially, the stockbrokers and the individual auction houses that were based in New York sort of said no. Like, even at this stage in American history, like the money men won. They were like, no, we don't. Mm. We're happy here, actually. We'd rather be here. So you can build politics down there, but we're going to keep our stocks (laughs) Up here, And so there was a need for some sort of formal regulation because it was a long way from Washington, D.C. And the system that they had, where you had to traipse around town going to individual auction houses trying to get a good deal, was even to them in 1792 evidently farcical and giving money to auctioneers when you really didn't need to. And the agreement was also an attempt to establish some kind of rules after this financial panic that had taken place just a little bit earlier in 1792, at which point there'd been no rules or safeguards and a lot of deals were being reneged on 
because basically you could do whatever you want. And the panic had been instigated by the actions of this particular speculator called William Dewar, who borrowed to make trades until he found that he couldn't borrow anymore. He was one of those people who's betting that the market's going to go down while everyone else is betting that it's going to go up. But he just stopped making his repayments at some point. So everyone's out of money and everyone starts wondering who lent to Dewar and if those people are going to be able to make their repayments and so on. It's kind of similar to the situation that happened more recently when Lehman brothers went bankrupt and people started wondering who that firm owed money to. So people panicked, they started selling, and the more they sold, the more the prices dropped, making even more panic until Alexander Hamilton worked with the First Bank of the United States to stop the panic. And I assume this must have been kind of the boring second act of Hamilton, (laughs) where it all gets very technical after the racy, punchy, you know, fun bit of the first act. Maybe we should read out the actual agreement because as arian said it is laudably straightforward we the subscribers brokers for the purchase and sale of the public stock do hereby solemnly promise and pledge ourselves to each other that we will not buy or sell from this day for any person whatsoever any kind of public stock at a less rate than one quarter percent commission on the specie value and that we will give preference to each other in our negotiations in testimony whereof we have set our hands this 17th day of may at new york 1792. That is it. It was a bit longer than I remembered. (laughs) (laughs) I still think that's brief for something so important. I mean, they thought it was important too. They called themselves very modestly the founding fathers, these stockbrokers. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) Bearing in mind where we are in history. The other ones. (laughs) (laughs) But they'd met secretly two months prior to this at the Chorus Hotel to finesse the details on this day they basically gathered underneath the shade of a buttonwood tree that is why it's called the buttonwood agreement and signed Mm -hmm. the agreement in case you're now googling buttonwood it is just another name for a sycamore tree and that name has resonated literally for centuries for people who follow finance stuff so like for example you know when they were talking about trying to standardize the blockchain about a decade ago people talked about having a bitcoin buttonwood it's still understood, yeah. a bit like um, bear market and bull market or whatever, it's still understood in, in the financial world to mean a, an agreement between all parties to standardise things. The uh, first location for this new uh, sort of stock floor, though, was, as I said in my intro, a coffee house. I thought it was kind of like a 90s and onwards idea, you know, that you take your laptop <laughs> to Starbucks and that you're a me-lancer. But that's what these stockbrokers <laughs> were doing. They were trading in a coffee yeah. house. And to return to that description that I was reading at the top, uh, it continues, the steps and balcony of the coffee house were crowded with people bidding or listening to the several auctioneers who had elevated themselves upon a hogshead of sugar, a puncheon of rum or a bale of cotton. Well, it's a pretty dynamic <laughs> environment. It is basically a... A pub. There were people having rum as well as coffee. Um, Docking ships would turn up to register their cargo, including slaves, even though, you know, technically you weren't supposed to be able to trade slaves in New York. Fist fights would frequently break out. There were dodgy deals taking place in the evenings. You can see where the blokey culture of Wall Street came from, can't you? If, like, for the first 20 years it happened in a coffee shop. Yeah, and it was a pretty limited circle at first as well. So that's one reason that they didn't need their own gigantic premises on Wall Street. Yeah, we're keeping it small, you know, we're, we're, we're keeping yeah, it agile. Just boutique. Yeah. A bijou, <laughs> just a bijou stock exchange. Yeah. And, uh, there were only a handful of businesses on there. Even by 1817, there were only 30 companies listed on the exchange. 
to the point that on March 16th, 1830, the slowest ever trading day on the stock exchange, only 31 shares changed hands. I mean, that's, wow. that's how sluggish the business was in the early years. It wasn't until the 1850s, and particularly the 1860s, where first you had all these massive infrastructure projects as America expanded. So you had people investing in companies that were building railways and canals and all of these things. And then you had the Civil War, which obviously was fantastic for speculators. A war is always good for the economy. And that would massively galvanise the stock market. So they went from 30 companies on the exchange in 1817 to more than 300 after the Civil War. It's funny that that early scene of people shouting over each other and drinking and the bawdy behaviour and uh, the sort of buy, 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 sell, sell, sell thing really is the image that I think we maintain Mm. in our brains about what happens on a trading floor. But actually, the New York Stock Exchange is rapidly becoming one of the few remaining trading floors in the world to still have humans because these days electronic trading has obviously spread and all electronic exchanges are commonplace. But the New York Stock Exchange itself has retained this hybrid model that means that you do still have some people walking around doing that more traditional thing. It's interesting though, isn't it, that in New York they've kept a hold of some of their traditions, you know, like it being called Wall Street, but they have evolved in that way where it's always bigger, better, more technology, now uh, at over $25 trillion, the biggest stock exchange in the world uh, by market cap. And yet you think about if this had been Britain and we'd have had a coffee house where everything was traded, it would still f- be there, wouldn't it? It would still be the coffee house, just like, you know, like the Oxford That's Union. True. Oh, this is no, no, yeah. no. We don't need to update this. This is the, the yep. man comes in and twice a day he reads out all of the stocks and then we all have a drink yeah. and we discuss it it's all, <laughs> and it's limited to 30 people at a time <laughs> yeah it's all still happening on poultry and you still have to bring your own chickens <laughs> whereas in America they're quite happy to just chuck out whatever burgeoning tradition they've got and make it bigger and better yeah burn it down start again mm. one thing that I did find surprising in my research actually was that it wasn't until 1985 that a sitting president visited the New York Stock Exchange, and unsurprisingly, it was Ronald Reagan. But I did wonder: is that was there perhaps a taboo against yeah, the idea of the president getting mixed up with the money men? Yeah, it must have yeah, been. Must have like been. Queen can't go into Parliament. Yeah, yeah, state um, and without... church separation. Yeah. yeah, because it's not like people don't visit the New York Stock Exchange. It's been visited by tons of celebrities over the years. A lot of them have come to ring the opening or yeah. closing bell. Yeah, like you'd expect to see, you know, Pamela Anderson or someone ringing the bell, wouldn't you? It's weird. Yeah, to it's think just no like one, maybe, no president just, went there till Reagan. Yeah, it just seems like there is maybe a bit of a sort of a dirty association that the president shouldn't be seen rubbing shoulders with stock traders. It's a bit like the Monegasques can't go in their own casino in Monaco, isn't it? It's like, we all know what's powering the economy, but let's not actually go there. (laughs) Tomorrow. He was a traitor, that he was a moral reprobate, so he really didn't shut his mouth about how terrible Marlowe was, even when he'd been murdered. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.